Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, July the 19th. This is episode 2916 of the Survival Podcast. And it's called, How Eft is the Dollar? Right? Um, occasionally I drop the F word on the show uh, when it's called for or when it's needed uh, I don't think it's needed in the title of uh, a show. I don't think I have to go that far. I think everybody knows what it means when you spell F with like a dollar sign and a percent sign and then K-E-D, what you're talking about. And then that way I don't have to have the show marked explicit uh, in the uh, podcast feeds and it doesn't get limited in distribution. So that's me just being a little bit smart about being able to reach people with this message today, which I think is going to be an incredibly, and I mean incredibly, important message. Uh, as many of you know, I've been people. I've been teaching people to actually diversify their portfolios since the very beginning of this show. I got a lot of confidence from people, a lot of notoriety, etc. When I launched this show in June of 2008, for those that are new to the show, that's how long I've been doing this now. It's over 13 years. And back in June of, uh, it was really by July of 08, I started basically saying, listen, one of the reasons I'm doing this is there is a financial crisis coming like nothing anybody that's alive has ever seen before. It will make the dot-com bust look like a joke. This is going to be a multi-year event, and it is going to be something you, that is so obvious that it's coming that you know it's coming. You have little risk by not being in the market right now. Get your money out of the stock market. And I said it many times leading up to the eventual of the stock market. And, you know, after that, I had people mad at me because they were saying, well, what should I do now? And I'm like, I, I don't know what you should do now. I mean, if you held on, um, you know, no one wants to sell at the bottom and buy back at the top. I mean, you, you've taken the beating now. Now you have to figure it out. But what I taught back then and I said there would be a recovery, and I also said it would be a false recovery, and I said I didn't know how long it would be, and I think we just watched it happen. And that it would be the other side of that false recovery where the real misery would come. But, of course, even I couldn't have seen what's happened with COVID and COVID relief and shutting down and trying to restart an economy. Like We have literally taken the economy of the globe to the brink of disaster, and if it was a ship... And we were at sea, and the storm was raging, and you could hear the deck, you know, an old ship, like an old wooden ship going, just trying to hold together. And all the people in charge of the ship, right, the captain and the senior officer said, I know how we'll fix it. Let's set it on fire. That's what COVID and the response to it was. And I don't think these people are that stupid, so I think it's part of this long-term plan to devalue and rebase the United States dollar. And that's something that I've talked about forever. Now, whether they'll be successful in their rebasement, I don't know. But I don't think the dollar is likely to go away so much it is about to be born again, brothers and sisters. Let's take the dollar and baptize it into Fed coin. I mean, something like that. And I don't think that fixes all the problems, but it may give the dollar another round of existence. It doesn't necessarily mean you want to be holding it when it happens. It just means it might have another round here. And because of this 
and watching all of the indicators not just remain in place, but continue to get stronger over time, these indicators, I've recommended that people actually practice true diversity in holding of assets. Not fake diversity like financial liars teach. You know, you have mid-cap, small-cap, income, and fixed-income stocks, so you're well, and international, so you're well-diversified. So you're, what you're telling me is I have all securities denominated in dollars, except I have some securities denominated in even weaker fiat currencies. That, that does not make diversification. And so what I've taught is that we need cash for short- and midterm needs. Because we can always spend it, but we can't spend it if we don't have it. So when we look at our short- to midterm needs, since everything is priced in dollars, that's what we hold. So we hold cash. When I say cash, I do mean money in a box. I also mean money in a bank account. I mean any form of cash that's, that's liquid, that within five minutes to five days you can spend it. I consider that liquid cash. Precious metals is a wealth insurance program, and I've recommended that at 5% to 10% of net wealth from the very beginning. And the only thing I didn't recommend in this entire list I'm giving you right now since the very beginning was cryptocurrency, and that's because that was so damn long ago. I'm so old and the show's so old, it didn't exist yet. So when I got on the cryptocurrency, people said, oh, well, we have gold and silver. I have never changed my recommendation on gold and silver. 5% to 10% of your total net wealth. Not your investment portfolio, your total net wealth. So a way that you have to think about your net wealth is things that go on your balance sheet are net wealth and things that don't go on your balance sheet are net wealth. And things that might go on maybe don't go on the way they would go on. So if you own a house worth $400,000, people say, well, it's $400,000 on their balance sheet. No, what's the equity in the house? Because, you know, A equals L plus C for my accounting nerd friends out there, right? But if you own a $400,000 house, but you owe $300,000, you have $100,000 of net wealth in that property. Does that make sense? So that is part of this wealth allocation and assurance because if we're protecting our wealth, we need to protect all of our wealth because there are things that can crash a real estate market too. Okay, so five, and, and I'm more of the 5%, but I don't get nervous for a person up to 10% in, in, in precious metals. When they start to go over that, I start to feel that they're a little bit out of weight. I have recommended Bitcoin at about a 5% base net wealth minimum. And if you want to hold other cryptocurrencies, etc., that's fine, up to about 20% or more. And I also have to clarify something there. There are those of you that listened to me when I said this, right? And right now you have far more than 20% of your wealth in Bitcoin because you put 5% of it in and it's expanded in value that much. I don't necessarily think you need to rebalance this. Maybe we don't need to be throwing a ton more in, though after today you may want to. And that's the same thing with precious metals. If you listened to me in the very beginning about precious metals and you got up to that 5% number relatively quickly, you could be well above that now. So I'm not worried when that play does well that we bail out of it. What I'm saying is that that's kind of the play going in. I also have always recommended, and I still hold myself, typical well-managed securities, stocks, ETFs, etc., uh, mutual funds, you name it. That securities market is not gone 
at this point. It is denominated in dollars, but it is still a place where the majority of wealth being pushed around in the world today is inside that market. That doesn't mean that you can go on autopilot. That doesn't mean that if you are 30 years old and you just put 10% of your 401k every week and, and go into you know decent mutual funds that you're going to be okay by the time you're 70. It doesn't mean that at all. There is a point to go, let's get out of the way of the truck. Let's get out of the way of the truck. I'm just saying like we haven't gotten to the point where like you need to get all the way off the road, away from the truck, out in the woods with your money yet. There's still, I think there's still potential great deal of upside in the market. But I'm also getting very nervous about where this is headed, maybe quicker than people think, because it is always a gradually then suddenly thing when this stuff happens. I've also recommended real estate with minimal debt relative to your ability to service the debt. Meaning, if you, you might own the same house I do, and it might be a bad investment for you. Because if, if, I, if my business crashes tomorrow, there's going to be some adjustments I have to make in my life, but I can service the debt on this property for 10 years. You may not be able to. So you have to be careful with real estate, especially your primary real estate, that you live in because you rely on it, that you have all your assets, other associated assets, um, leveraged against. And what I mean by that is like, If I have a garden that I've invested money into and that garden has a two-year payback time and it's already paid back, but now I'm getting X percent of my food out of it, it also is in my backyard. If I lose the house, I lose the garden. So we have to be careful, especially with that primary residence. Real estate holdings that are leveraged to the point somebody else is paying for them, if that revenue source goes away, you can lose that property, but in the end, you're still whole. You don't lose your personal property because you lost a rental property, if that makes sense, okay? Not with proper structuring, anyway. So real estate with minimal debt relative to your ability to service the debt. Non-consumable preps. When I say non-consumable, I don't necessarily mean you don't eat them. I mean that you don't use them up. These are hard assets like tools, gardens, guns. And, you know, I would say ammo is a consumable debt. We'll get to that in a second. Um, anything that once you buy it, you have it either forever or as long as is reasonable, well-maintained, or like for the foreseeable future, like 10 years or more, I would consider that a hard good, a non-consumable. Where if I buy a bag of rice, it's a consumable. There's a clear timeline to where there is no more rice. Okay, So we need, to, we need to put that into our wealth equation. If you have a really great set of tools and the training and knowledge and how to use them, there's so many things you can do with those tools. If you own a trailer, I mean, you have a business. If you have a trailer and a vehicle capable of towing it, you have a business you can roll out tomorrow. I've mentioned this before. There's a guy in my neighborhood. He gets all his business from nextdoor.com. And all he does is go pick shit up for people and haul shit away for people. You know, and he, he, he makes six, seven hundred bucks a week. I remember when I didn't get close to making that in a week. I remember my first job out of the military. I literally made, I think, $225 a week. I know that was a long time ago, but still. The, the fact that that I see at that point I was I'm a, I was a smart kid already you know but I, it really wasn't in my mind that hey you know you could just go out and do this and there certainly weren't the tools that made it as easy back then there was no next door there was no real internet as we think of it today and certainly weren't enough people using it to make it as simple as hey I haul shit away like the dude literally posts like once or twice a week 
on Nextdoor that he's available to do this, and he gets word of mouth, and he gets all the business he's willing to take. So you need hard assets that enable you to produce for yourself or to earn income or to provide value. And, and that can take any form that makes sense for you. And then you have your consumable preps are part of your assets as far as I'm concerned. Your stored food, your water, batteries, fuel, all of the things that you can store but you use up, especially when they're things that you are going to need anyway. All you're doing is moving the allocate or, or the, the acquisition of them into the present so that their, their, their needs in the future are already taken care of. So the only way you lose in that realm is if they go down in price. And they have to go down fairly exponentially for the, the, the small financial loss to outweigh the security and convenience. Think of it as it's a premium. You're paying a premium. You're paying an option price if you do lose money. If you put 500, 500 gallons of gas in storage and you're using it out of a 500-gallon tank to fuel your car and the gas price goes down 20 cents, that 20 cents differential was basically the option price that you paid to have the fuel available. And this is why when I start talking about, well, save some cash, people are like, if you think the dollar's doomed, that's crazy. No, because cash is the most liquid and immediately exchangeable thing that we have that the most largest variety of people will take. And so when you hold cash, even if it goes down in value 5% a year, and you hold it for two years and it went down 10% in value, but you have the cash, it is liquid. And now when prices plunge somewhere and you can execute a purchase, that money that you lost, the purchasing value you lost, was to keep the liquidity option open. It's an option fee. And until you start thinking the way that I'm describing here, you don't understand money, you don't understand investments, and you don't understand what the hell's happening to you what has happened to you, and what is going to continue happening to you. And that means that you are at their mercy. That's the shit we're talking about today. We're going deep into this today. Before we do, let me remind you about our two sponsors today. Sponsor today, number one, is ButcherBox. You know, I love ButcherBox because when everybody was freaking out, when the meat emptied off the shelves last year during the COVID crap, I didn't even care. I was like, man, I might need another freezer because a big giant box of meat just shows up in my house. This is a meat insurance program, but it's good quality meat. It's pastured pork. It's pastured poultry. It's grass-fed beef. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. Remember, they do a discount for MSB members. It's $10 a box for as long as you stay a member. That's $120 a year. So they are really also a great supporter of the MSB and the show and a great place to get your meat from. Next up today is Backwoods Home Magazine. If you ever think to yourself, gee, Jack sure knows a lot of shit. How does he know all this stuff? Some of it, not all of it, but some of it goes all the way back to 1993 because that's just how old I am. I just gotten out of the United States Army and I went down to a little bookstore. You may, you may have heard of the place. There's not many of them left, I don't think. Barnes and Noble. You know, when they were a little bookstore, they were actually huge and there were like couches and chairs all over the place. And I was pretty broke, so I'd go in there and buy an expensive coffee, but I considered it like a day at a library that had all the books I actually wanted to read for the price of a coffee. So I'd buy a coffee, so I want a freeloader, and I'd sit there and read books and magazines. And I came across Backwoods Home back then, and when I got a job, that first job making a little over $200 a week, that was when I subscribed to Backwoods Home. It was my first, uh, you know, grown-up, self, you know, self-inflicted subscription to a magazine ever. And it is 2021, 
and I am still a subscriber. Need I say more? Check him out today at BackwoodsHome.com. All right, so let's start digging deeper into this. Again, I just want to talk about why I believe the dollar is screwed, like as we think of it. And when I say screwed, let's say that it, it doesn't get rebased. Let's say that we don't melt down into complete and total oblivion. What I'm talking about is an ongoing devaluation that exceeds what we've come to accept as normal from the dollar. So we have been dealing with, on paper, according to official figures, around 2-ish percent or a little more inflation for the history of the modern dollar. And what is the history of the modern dollar? I know it's 1913 when the Federal Reserve ain't wrong because we had defaults after that. That was the first default on the money. When the United States government let a foreign, uh, let a private entity take over creation and control of our currency in the Federal Reserve, we had a default. But that's not the modern dollar. That was the, that was the next dollar. In 1933, when Roosevelt decoupled the dollar from gold and went from a 20 to 1 ratio, in other words, uh, $20 to one ounce of gold, to I think it was a 33 to 1 ratio, and devalued it by that, you know, went from 20 to 1 to 33 to 1. Think about that. That was another default on the dollar. They seized the gold and they defaulted against the dollar's value, and then they had more money to spend by making the money worth less. They sucked value from the people into the hands of the government and the Fed so they could fund the war. So they defaulted again. So is that when we had the modern dollar start? No, no. In 1964, 1965, we went ahead and defaulted again, this time on the coinage, and took silver out of the coin. So we had another default, and that would be at least a partial, you know, like 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 2.5, version 2.5 of the dollar in, in, in modern times. But that would not be... It would be Nixon who then separated the dollar from gold at all in any way, shape, or form in the 1970s, 71 if I remember right. And that was actually more nuanced and it's harder to pin down exactly when what happened. Because I often talk about the full decoupling of the dollar in 1975 and people get very upset about that and say, but it wasn't 75. It really was. Because it's when they removed the legal restrictions against individuals, private citizens owning gold, and gold was able to show its true value. And at that point, it really became evident what had happened to the dollars. So I'd say the modern dollar is post-1975. And we've had, you know, 2 to 4% on average inflation per year aggregated out. And people get really upset about that. But what you need to understand is that's the plan. That's the plan. And something people have a real hard time understanding is... Businesses, entities in general, would rather have bad news that they know than good news possibly or bad news possibly and not know. Businesses love to plan with as much knowns as possible. So if a business knows I can put this amount of the cost of capital in my balance sheet and I can rely on it then, and how much I can borrow and what i got to pay for that and you know, everything else, I can model my business and I can make it work. When that cost of capital begins to go up, there is a breaking point. And it's about 15%. When you might as well be in Argentina or in, uh, um, Zimbabwe. It doesn't necessarily mean the money boils to, to zero, right? And you need a, a $1 million dollar, uh, note to buy a sack of potatoes. It doesn't necessarily mean that. What I mean by it might as well be Zimbabwe 
It might as well be Argentina, etc. While they were going through their financial crises, you could have run your business perfectly. You're still sunk. You can't overcome the cost of capital anymore, and you're in a point where you're losing money by holding it. And you're losing it beyond the value of what we talked about earlier, the option cost. And we're now in a place where that is almost a certainty, and it makes this a game that is over by mathematical certainty. The, the amount of money that we owe ourselves cannot be repaid. The numerator now overpowers the denominator. There's, there's, there is no way out of this. We, cannot, we can't print our way out of it because the printing is the problem at this point. And there's a lot of times when people say, oh, we're printing too much money. Yeah, we are, but it, it still can work. It can't, it, they broke it. They override it would already seem to be insane with complete and total insanity. You can't, you can't cut your way. We can't tax our way out of this. If you double taxation right now, tax receipts will go down. Tax receipts will go down and financial growth will come, pull back. Yeah, because think of it this way. Taxes are the cost of doing business, and the more expensive something is, the less of it you can afford. Really simple, right? So let's say that I was selling, I don't know, iPhones for a thousand bucks. And one of my bean counters comes in and goes, Mr. Uh, Jack Cook, right? Uh, we, we need to make more money next year. And I said, well, raise the price on the iPhone. And I said, well, how much? I said, 50 bucks. Might work. All my bean counters are going to go, they're going to run a pricing curve, and they're going to come back and go, you know what, we can charge 50 bucks more. And here's what it'll get us. And it's going to cannibalize a little bit, but it's going to be overpowered by this much in, in more sales. And I go, yeah, that's great, do 150 bucks. And there's a point where they're going to come back and they're going to go, we actually make less money now. We actually make less money. We, we have driven off enough new purchases that we, we sell enough less that even at a higher price, we're going negative. And then every dollar I add to that price, where that, where that break point is, when I get on the backside of the pricing curve, every dollar I add makes it worse. And there's a point where it goes terminal, it crashes. And that's how taxes work. You can't just keep raising taxes. So we can't tax our way out of this reality. We cannot cut spending out of this reality. First, massive segments of the economy are not dependent on spending. Massive amounts of people are dependent on spending through direct receipt of this money. But even if we cut spending in half, if we double taxes and cut spending in half, the problem would get worse. So we can't cut our spending way out of this. We can't tax our way out of this. And there's not the political will to do austerity anyway. So there's no way getting out there. Um, I believe the currency we have will be rebased by something. There'll be some new version of the dollar, another default. It won't be called a default. I mentioned to you several defaults that occurred in the last 100 and, well, 110 years-ish. 1913, 1933, was it 33 or 35? Whenever Roosevelt did it. 1964. And 1971, and really you saw what happened in 71 reach its full reality in 75 with the, decou with the, uh, the decriminalization of gold. 
So it will be another default like that. It'll just be a hell of a lot more painful. And I think a lot of people, when you talk like this, they're like, oh, so it's not that bad. Like, I wasn't really alive in the 70s to the point where I understood what was going on. I was, I was there as a little kid. I was watching Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers and Electric Company. I remember the feeling in the country, a feeling of dread, a feeling of doom. Even though I was fairly well, well sheltered from it, I remember that feeling. But I don't remember understanding it. I can intellectually understand it now, but I didn't live through it. If you talk to somebody that was around in, in the 60s going into the 70s and lived through the 70s and like the best part of our lives are supposed to be, like our 30s, they'll tell you it was bad shit. They'll tell you that You know, the, uh, the supposed misery that you went through from 08 to about 12 was a cakewalk compared to like 71 to 79, even up to about 82. With, with Reagan's, you know, new day in America or the dawning, rising of the sun or whatever it was he called it. Like, until that happened, the 70s were miserable. And I can tell you again, having been a fairly young kid, not really understanding it, I can still tell you that the feeling of this kind of like dread Our best days having been behind us was there. This will be worse. And the reason I think they'll rebase the currency is there is no other play. You can't cut interest rates any further than we are. We're, I mean, we're at zero. Like, interest rates on a six-month bond, U.S. bond, are zero. Some of our bonds are now paying negative interest rates. So it'd be like you come to me and I and you say, Jack, I'm going to uh, I, I'm going to uh, need you to loan me a hundred dollars, and I say, okay, sure. And then I say, so what are you going to give me back? Well, in six months, I'm going to give you $98 back, and I'm okay with this. That's what a negative yielding bond is. I'm giving you money, and you're giving me less back at the end, and this is a contract we both agree to going in. Great for the borrower. Terrible for the lender. When you buy a bond, you're the lender. That's what it is. And a lot of these bonds are only being purchased right now because the whole system has been rigged that there are billions and billions of dollars every month that are mandated to go into these bonds. There's pension funds, etc., that X percent. There's all these mutual funds that X percent must be in these government bonds. There's, there's shenanigans that go on with the banks where, yeah, we'll give you this unlimited faucet of free money, but you have to put some money in bonds. And remember, I'm the only one to this day that I know has even talked about this. In the early to mid-2000s, there was a very quiet removal from, like as far as I can tell, about 95%. It's only gotten worse, I can imagine, since I walked away from that world, of money market type or dollar funds in 401ks. They took them away, and the only conservative option most people have in their 401ks, 403bs, etc., is a bond fund that loses money. That loses money and has been losing money. Your conservative play is a loss. There's, and this happened back in 08, 09 when I'm like, get your shit out of the stock market. And I had people email me, go, I'm going I'm to pay a fortune to pull it out of my 401k. I got 400 grand in my 401k. I'm going to lose money like crazy. You're telling me to pull it out. I'm like, I didn't tell you to pull it out of 401k. So get it out of the stock market. 
They're like, well, how do I do that? I'm like, put it in a, in a dollar fund or put it in a money market account. Well, I don't have one. I'm like, bullshit. And people started sending me their paperwork. That's how I uncovered this. And I had, and I, I, I pulled the audience, and about 75% of people, when they, che they, they answered me on it, that checked their paperwork said, I don't have the option anymore. A lot of people said, I have the option, but only because I was in before they took it away. But if I ever stop contributing to it, it will go away. And they never told me that, but when I asked HR, they told me that. So that's been done. So there's this massive amount of money still going into the bond market by mandate or by design that doesn't really want to be there. And it numbers billions and billions of dollars. And that's the only thing that's even propped it up this long, which you would have known if you would have been listening to me back when I explained that, you know, 10 years ago. So I do think it will be rebased. And I also want to, like, kind of say... I think the end is near does not mean tomorrow, next week, or even next year. I don't pretend to be enough of a prophet to tell you exactly when this is going to happen. I'm telling you math-wise. You either get some sort of lagging Frankenstein dollar that continues, or you get some sort of rebasing. And I think FedCoin is your most likely, I'm not guaranteeing this, but I think it's your most likely Dollar rebasement technology. And you might think that it doesn't really solve the problem, but it can. It can solve the problem for them, not you. Understand that? For them, not you. There's a couple of ways you can do it. The new Fed coin could end up tied to some hard asset. Not likely, but that would be one way. Like It could create discipline and a lot of pain when it happens and a massive devaluing. Or... You might be able to fiddle with the inflation numbers to a degree during the transition and hide it for a while. Or you might be able to institute some sort of massive wealth tax that's really inflation, but you call it a wealth tax, so it's actually seen as shoring up the treasury. Or some other bullshit they pull out of their ass. But I'll tell you, whatever they do won't be good for you. That, that, that I can tell you. So either we get zombie dollars and zombie banks, or we get this new reconstituted Frankenstein dollar, right? This new repackaged, bolted together, like the big bolts in the neck Frankenstein monster, in some, some way that cobbles it together and makes the next rendition of this. Because no, it's not going to go away in of itself. So what can we do about it? Because I'm big on solutions, right? I know many of you still won't believe me to this day, but the number one thing I think that you can do about this is buy Bitcoin. I, I know that's hard to believe, and I want to talk about my quote of the day here, and I saved it till now. Penn Gillette said, if there's something you really want to believe, that's what you should question the most. And I know people would try to push that back and turn that around on me and say, well, Jack, the reason you believe that Bitcoin is, is the way to go is because you want to believe it. I actually don't want to believe it. I did everything I could to resist it. I first started talking about it and having people in this audience tell me about it in 2012, and it took me until 2014 to say, you should probably do this. It took me two years. It took me two years of resisting, but yet remaining open-minded and investigating and understanding the technology and the aspect of Bitcoin that makes it the hardest money that man has ever known.
It is hard money. People don't think it's hard money. They think it's ether. It's backed by bleeps and gloops or whatever. It's backed by energy, and that energy is, is, is basically a security mechanism that backs it. And it's security in that it cannot be counterfeited. It is security in that it has a hard enforceable cap of 21 million units. And it is security in that, unless you're stupid, it can't be seized or taken from you. And that is something that no, and it, it is, it is also security in that it can be transferred between parties without interference, even if somebody desires to cause the interference. If it has anything against it, it's privacy, and we're getting more and more options with that. And I do think some other cryptocurrencies have real potential. I think 99% of them will be completely worthless. I think in the end, Bitcoin is to cryptocurrency is Google is to search engine market or search engine uh, services. In other words, I mean, I think some of y'all are a bit younger than me, so maybe you don't remember this, but there was a search engine called Ask Jeeves. It sounds completely stupid on its face today that says to say that Ask Jeeves was ever considered a competitor to search engines like Google or even Yahoo. Ask Jeeves had a Super Bowl commercial. How about Hotbot? How about Lycos? Any of these things? Alta Vista, Dogpile. I, I'm not. I don't have a list in front of me here, guys. I'm, I'm running from memory with these. There's there's do, a dozen I probably can't remember. Bing, Bing's still around. It's crap. If you own Microsoft stock and it's making you any money, it damn sure isn't because of Bing or whatever the hell they call it now. Yahoo. I bet there's people still holding Yahoo stock that, were, that bought it when it was $300 before the, they bought out Broadcast.com and destroyed that and destroyed the value of their, of their company. Right. What, what stock in search marketing did you want to hold for any length of time since the dawning of the Internet? Which one, if it's in search marketing, did you – and it's Google – and nothing else, even the ones that are still around. And none of them are public as far as... Yahoo's no longer a public company. It merged with something else and went private and was spun off. AOL. AOL had its own search engine, right? It's all dead. Google ate everyone. Google ate everyone. And they're evil as shit. But as an investor, that's what I wanted to be holding. There's no financial case against it. When it comes to cryptocurrency... That's Bitcoin. If you wanted to hold a public company that was a social media company, you wanted to hold Facebook. Twitter, sure, but you wanted to hold Facebook. Facebook ate everything. There's competitors. They'll do well. I really think the future is in what people call new media that I just call media because I don't even call it social media. But I think that's a cycle, and it's finally cycling through. And then we have to understand something about Bitcoin. You I'm using this analogy, but you can't use it 100%. It's not about technology alone. It's about all those computers the eco-weenies scream about whirring over and over and over and over again. To secure that network. No other cryptocurrency has that to that level, to that degree, and they won't. And a lot of the mining being done of altcoins is being done by people who are mining those altcoins for others. You know, check out NiceHash. NiceHash, you can go to NiceHash. 
And if you want to mine, I don't know, jiddly do Bitcoin, whatever it is, this new coin, and you don't actually have the equipment, you can buy hash power from somebody else who's a miner and give them some information and all, and boom, and next thing you know, you're mining it, but you're using their rigs. But do you know what they get paid in? Do you know what they're actually mining? They're mining Bitcoin. Not directly, but indirectly, and in that that's what you have to pay them in. Bitcoin's driving so much of this altcoin mining, people don't even understand that. Bitcoin is the hardest money that man has ever created, and some of it belongs in your portfolio. And you can be in denial of it, but you're back to, you need to question the thing that you most want to believe. And not believing the validity of a thing is in itself a belief. You have a belief that this can't be, that there's no way that this can be. And I understand it, because I shared that belief. And I'm going to tell you this, if you've spent like, say, three or four hours honestly and sincerely investigating Bitcoin, you still don't know jack shit about Bitcoin. It takes a lot more than that. It really does, because it is so counter to what you've been conditioned to believe. So I don't want to believe that from a standpoint of, I don't like what it means. I don't like what it means about the annihilation of everything we think of when it comes to dollars. I don't like to think about the fact that it means zombie dollars. I don't like to think about the fact that it means Frankenstein dollars, and it, take your pick, it's one or the other. I don't like that, because I know how much misery it's going to bring. But I still challenge every belief that I have, and you should too. Yes, also hold some precious metals. My advice on that has not changed. It will never change. I think that precious metals are the number two hard asset to hold that we routinely price in dollars that are fungible. Meaning that an ounce of silver is an ounce of silver is an ounce of silver. If there was no cryptocurrency, at this point in history, I would have raised up my 5% to 10% number in precious metals. I would be a gold bug rather than a fan of gold if there was no cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency can do a dozen things I could rattle off that gold and silver cannot and will never ever be able to do. It doesn't change the fact that it's in your hand. And so you have this, I want you to think it like you're defending yourself. We often talk about the double-edged sword, and we think about the double-edged sword as how it can help us and how it can hurt us. We never think of ourselves holding the two-edged sword. Where we have the option to to strike to the left or to the right with the same sword without having to turn it. How we can use the double-edged sword as our tool, in this case economically. With silver and gold, I have a physical asset I can put my hands on. If the Internet's down, yes, it's still there. If the Internet's down, the, the Bitcoin's not for a time. But this whole shit about, well, the Internet's just going to go away. They're going to take it down. They're not going to do anything that hurts the billionaires. And if the internet goes down, you got bigger problems than the loss in value of your Bitcoin. Way bigger. But if the internet is down for now, it is good to have another option. If I am talking to a person and I want to do private commerce with them, they may not be willing to accept Bitcoin. Most people that wouldn't accept Bitcoin or some other form of crypto, like a privacy coin, like a Monero or a pirate chain, most of those people would accept precious metals. And if they won't accept that, you know what they'll accept, and we'll get to that soon. 
But I want both of those. And I really think whenever somebody responds to either with, you should do this instead, this is a... I think you're looking at the Dunning-Kruger effect in full force. You're claiming to know that which cannot be known. What will be the better play in the next three months, six months, 12 months, if you need to liquidate or exchange? You cannot know that. I cannot claim that I know that. I do know that the dollar is in massive trouble because math. And I know that math can never go away now. I know what they did can never be taken back. We can never change our mind about what we've done. The system, as manipulated as it was, had rules. Rules that most people that talked about printing money didn't understand were actually being followed. And now the people that set the rules for themselves broke their own rules. And the math will not go away. So I believe in having both. I want the sword that can cut in both directions. Because I can privately transfer silver between myself and the guy across the street from me, but I can privately transfer cryptocurrency between myself and the guy across the world from me, and I want to be able to do both, and you should too. Hold land if you can. Hold land if you can. If that land is the dirt around your house, that's still holding land. There is a real value to property that is not going away unless your property is located in a stupid place. Some of these cities are going to they're going to collapse. Right now I'm I'm going through a course at a website called The Great Courses. It's amazing. It's done by a college professor. It's an archaeology professor and I'm going through a course on the history of civilizations in North America from a standpoint of native civilizations, from the arrival of the First Nations peoples all the way up to European contact and the results of that. The good, the bad, and the hideously ugly of it all. But as I'm watching this and I'm learning from this man and I'm seeing these civilizations rise and fall, a great deal is made about the fall of Native American civilizations after the arrival of Europeans, especially like the Soto's rampage is just it destroyed like it the, the fabric of the native peoples never was the same after that. There was so much destruction. But at the same time, you know, there were five thousand, six thousand years ago. There were great civilizations here that they don't teach you about in school. They rose and they fell. They rose and they fell. Some of them don't look like they fell due to hostile invasion, even of other native peoples. They rose and they fell. One lasted a thousand years. The remains of it are less than a six-hour drive for me. I'm going to go see it. There is no evidence that this civilization was ever attacked or was even heavily engaged in any sort of combat or warfare. And it still collapsed. It still collapsed. And when I look at some of these cities and the people running them and the majority of people that vote in them behaving self-destructively, all I can think is, yeah, you can collapse without making it in a thousand years. And some of these places that we think of as like these small, almost like nation states from these native peoples, they're about the same population as some of these like mid to large sized cities. And, you know, if you're in Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles at all, Chicago, there's a big plant 
chance your land could be ended up being fairly worthless for a time. I think in the end, land retains value. But you have to be careful with the location. People are like, location, location, location. I'll tell you what location isn't right now. It's not trendy neighborhoods and lots of shopping. That's not what you're looking for. You want that rent. Location right now is security and more freedom than is typical. That's where security and property is right now. And it is in a lot of states that we think of as red states as well. It really is. Not all cities within all red states. If you said, and I didn't know anything else, two properties, equal type, equal value, equal cost, everything is pretty much equal. One is in the city of Dallas. One is in the city of Fort Worth. Which one are you going to buy, Jack? Fort Worth. But do you know the one in Dallas? Uh, no, you said they're the same. Well, they're not. Because Dallas is a Democrat-run city, and it is a cesspool. Fort Worth's got its problems. Dallas just has bigger ones. So include that with your mindset on holding property. Develop your skill set in a diverse manner. This is another thing I've been teaching for 13 years. It has never been more important than right now. The more things you can do, the more value you have, the more non-brittle and resilient you are when you have to go into reactive mode. No matter how much we plan, no matter how proactive we are, no matter how many redundancies we put in place, there will be times in the next 10 years and the next 20 years that we will, all of us, have to be in a reactive mode. We will have to go, shit, the invasion plan did not survive contact with the enemy, The fallback location is blown. We have to improvise. At that point, you want as much knowledge and skill set as you have, and you want as many other people with complementing knowledge and skill sets around you as possible. So you also need to be forming networks of people to support and do business together. Because no matter how diverse and valuable you become, you can't do it all. And you shouldn't do it all. There's certain things certain people shouldn't do. They're just not good at it. You know, I shouldn't sing. I know that's probably not the type of thing you were thinking about, but there's no person that's ever been to karaoke night at a workshop here that thinks Jack Spirico should be singing. It's just not my thing. I'm just not good at it. You know, I shouldn't be going to school to learn how to be a surgeon right now. I'm almost 50. I do not have the time to spend the next 12 to 18 years of my life going through fellowships to become a neurosurgeon. It is not now at this point in my walk worth that investment. But I should learn more and more every day about basic medical care. Because there are things I can do for myself and others. And that's how you're going to have to think. What you should be learning and where you should be dedicating your time on education is different when you're 18 than when you're 80. And that's okay. But you need to develop your skill sets and you need to form networks so that we can do business with each other and so we can exchange value and support each other. That is as important to this as anything else. You do need to develop food production. I believe that. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need a garden. Maybe you should. It's the best play for the most people. It doesn't mean it's the right play for all the people. There's a lot of ways you can develop food production. If you live somewhere with enough publicly accessible or by some means of dealing and wheeling, individually accessible natural resources, 
that produce food, in some ways that's better. Do you know that civilization I talked about? Thousands and thousands of people less than a six-hour drive from me, right? It was a huge city with pyramids in it. In, in North America, they built the pyramids from soil instead of rock. But that's what it was. They didn't have agriculture. They weren't, like, we've always said that civilization and agriculture go together. They didn't have agriculture. They were a civilization. They were a civilization of hunter-gatherers. Now I have my suspicions that as a permaculturist, if I could travel in time back to this place, I'd be able to point out a lot of what people think of as agriculture, i.e. horticulture, management of the forest, management of things that attracted game, etc. But they lived off the land. So when I say food production, there's a lot of ways to that. If you have resources near you and you can produce 20% of your, your, your protein intake from fishing, That's food production. If you have ways where you can for that's food production. If you can invest in someone that does the food production, and one of the ways that you benefit as an investor is not just economically, but you, in, you, you benefit with some level of your ROI in food. That's food production. If you put together a group of people in your area that form the foundation of a co-op so that they are producing food, even if you're just a straight buyer, That is food production because it's local and it's got autonomy. So be very broad with that definition when I say produce some of your own food. The reason I'm so big on gardening or things like small-scale hydroponics or aquaponics, etc., is you can do that tomorrow. You don't need anybody's permission except maybe your wife's or your husband's, depending on who, who you are, right? But definitely, you need to develop food production. Build a business if you can. Again, I've said today already, and I say often, not everybody should do everything. So build a business is good advice in general. It's like the garden advice. It's the best advice for the most people, but it's not for everybody. But if you're not going to build a business, then you should develop a side hustle or develop enough skill sets that you are so marketable, there's always something you can be doing to earn money, even if you don't do it right now. Because we're going to go through some flux, folks. This is going to suck. I'm incredibly optimistic. This might be one of the greatest periods of opportunity of all. And again, I'm almost 50, so I'm going to be an old, I'm going to be an old fuck as this is going on. So if anybody should be like freaking out, it should be me. And I'm just like, let's, let's rebuild society. Let's go. But it's because I'm practicing what I preach. It really is. And you should still save money and have conventional investments. Don't go liquidate your 401k and buy Bitcoin right now. Because if, if for no other reason, even if it works out, you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, and that's always bad. And it leads to stupid decisions like you do it, Bitcoin goes in half, you go, gee, I got to get my money back. And so you sell it at 16 grand because it happens, who knows. And two years later, it's 500 grand, and you're broke. You have to know why you're doing what you do, just like you have to know why you believe what you believe. Those two go together. And I do think that there's still some longevity in the markets. There's a tremendous amount of liquidity in the markets. But, and in my show notes, it says, you should still save money and have conventional investments, and but is in all capitals. Breaking the netiquette quote, you know, uh, netiquette, netiquette uh, criteria. But, pay very close attention and have an exit strategy. 
Know how you're going to implement your exit strategy if you decide you need to implement it. Know what you're going to do, where you're going to go, and how to do it. Because everything I'm telling you about the relative stability of where we are, I could come on the air in two years and say, it's over, get out. I could come on the air in two weeks and say, it's over, get out. I don't anticipate that. I'm just telling you it can happen. It, it really can. So be ready to move when you need to move. Have your finger on the pulse. Don't go to sleep on this. And and when I say money, this is short-term needs. So this year is a short-term need. I think more and more of your, you know, you, we have generally thought of like midterm savings needs to start moving into the world of Bitcoin and or precious metal. And I, I would lean, you know, assuming you have PMs right now, I would lean toward Bitcoin being the better play. If you have none, that's a different story. That's a different story. Um, the cost of capital has gone from about 4% to a real 15 to 20%. Meaning people that have the most money are losing the most money every year if that money is not being invested in gaining a return. And meaning if you make 15% on your money, you really broke even. And that's what I said. There's no way out of this. This can't be fixed. You can't be in a place where a 15% return is break even. That's kind of where we are right now. And that's not Jack Spierko's number. That's quite a few different people's number. But the person I respect the most is what led him to his own epiphany on, on cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, is Michael Saylor. That's Michael Saylor's number. He's like, if you're being real, right, this guy's an MIT grad. right? This is not some dude with a Medium blog. He said, if you're being realistic, over the next five years, when you run your numbers on your operation, the number you need to be using for cost of capital is 15%. And that means if you're not doing something to preserve the capital itself beyond just operations, you cannot win. And I'm going to go in to finish up today with a list of reasons this can't be fixed that you need to understand. But I want to start out with an analogy, a story. Have you ever heard, and I know I've talked about it before for other things, but of an antlion? An antlion, also, so kids call them doodlebugs. They do exist here in Texas. I haven't seen a lot of them. But in Florida, they were all over the place. And an antlion is is actually, um, it's like a caterpillar is to a butterfly, but I don't remember what the animal or the insect it turns into is, right? But it, it lives in the ground, and it eats ants, and then it goes into like a cocoon state, and then it becomes this other insect, you know, sort of like a dragonfly nymph becomes a dragonfly, that type of thing. And... They make these little funnels and they go in, in sand and soft soil in soft soil. And then what you end up with is this little funnel. It's like a little funnel shaped divot in the soil. And it'll be anywhere from you know an inch around at the, the top to maybe I've seen some that are up to like two and a half inches in size, depending on the soil conditions and whatever. And here comes an ant. And the ant makes the mistake of going over the rim into this funnel. And I think this is actually the thing in, in Empire Strikes Back, not Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, the, the, thing, the worm eating people down in the hole. I think that's actually the inspiration for this thing. Because the ant 
then ends up in this like slippy soil that just can't get any traction, and it starts trying to run. And the harder it runs, the more it loses traction. And then the ant lion, who's sitting in the bottom of the hole, spits dirt at the ant. And he keeps hitting the ant, hitting the ant. And eventually the ant tumbles down to the bottom of the hole and chomp. The ant lion takes him under. Just like in um, Return of the Jedi. Exactly like that gulp. Not to be digested for a thousand years. Just a few minutes. And the ant is gone. And I feel this economic situation... That is the perfect metaphor for it. And I'm back to the math says so. We can't undo what we have done. As insane as the system of fractional reserve banking is, as insane as the system of being able to issue debt against your own debt instrument is, as insane as being able to basically say that there is a check on monetary supply but not have one, as insane as it all is, The fact that it's basically existed since 1913 in, in a very similar form to where it is, even with the defaults, that it has existed in its exact form that we're in since 1971, so more than 50 years, shows that if you follow its own rules, even though it's a bad system for the average person, It does work. And there was no reason it couldn't have worked for another hundred years other than absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the temptation to print money when one can is irresistible. It's too much power. That's why you have to have a hard-capped currency. And so, but if they could have stayed in their own rules, which were reckless, but they were still guided by logic, it could have lasted another hundred years. And I've always come from this to the standpoint of they're probably going to totally destroy it, but it could last another hundred years. It can't now. This is a point where when you do the math, there is no way out. And part of it is that the problem is global. So right now, to actually get out of it, we require a level of financial discipline that we've never seen a modern nation take. And it will cause massive pain and suffering the difference is you're taking the pain and suffering on now you know you're taking it on now you know why you're taking it and maybe just maybe just maybe if you did everything right you could dig your way out of this or at least reboot it for a while maybe get another 20 years and during that 20 years figure something else out the problem is since it's global the united states didn't just do this great britain did European Central Bank did. The Chinese did it. The Japanese did it. All the nations that both cooperate and compete did it. The Australians did it. The Brazilians did it. Everybody's in the same problem. And if anybody goes first and takes on the problem, first, you're taking on a problem you probably won't fix anyway. But second, you're giving a massive advantage to every other nation that doesn't do it. So it's like, who's going to take their finger off the button first? Except taking the button, finger off the button, instead of, instead of there ever being a potential for peace, it guarantees your own destruction. That's where we are. Like, can you see if the United States, like, we get, we get somebody in the to office, a Rand Paul or a Ron Paul, says, this is insane. We have to fix this now. 
the country in four years would be an absolute disaster. It's the right thing to do. It is the only path, and there'd have to be some complete rebasement of the currency in this as well. There'd have to be some return to some sort of sound money, or at least sounder money in this. But at the end of a four-year presidential term, the country's in a, in a financial disaster. You're going to be there anyway, but you're going to be the guy holding the hot potato if it's you. Who do you think has the stones to do that that the United States people would elect? And you have to get more than just a president on board with this. This is a, this is a, So you have to get a Congress full of Ron Pauls, a Federal Reserve chairman that is a Ron Paul, and a Ron Paul in the White House with a cabinet full of Ron Pauls to even try to fix this, and then it is guaranteed disaster. So, you know, call me a skeptic, but I just don't think that's going to happen. Next up. Good money will always push out bad money. And this is going back to my, my talk about Bitcoin earlier. You can try to make this go away all you want. But if you do the most basic fundamental analysis, like, like I said, I think you need to, it, it, I think it takes about 90 to 180 days of true research and reading and learning about Bitcoin to become confident enough in it that you can act on your confidence. I think there's people that go, oh, Bitcoin, yeah, I get it, and they just wander into it, and it works out for them because they've made the right choice, but they did it by, in, in that instance, kind of luck, or they just trusted the source or something like that. The danger is those people often fall out. They often decide, like, this really isn't for me. They buy in at the top of markets, etc., like that, to where you can act with confidence, You know, I, I, I mentioned today in my Miyagi mornings the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is where you have the person with 100% confidence doesn't know anything. Their knowledge is like almost zero. And that as you learn about something, you know, you tend to go up to the top of that, you know, where you've got 100% confidence. And the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. And there's like a bell curve, a reverse bell curve that drops way, way down. And when you're really informed, your confidence is actually at the lowest. And as you continue to become informed, your confidence comes back, and maybe you end up as an expert with a confidence of about 70 to 80, 75 to 80%. And you're never back at that 100% ever again. That 100% is a fool's errand. Because you always know there's something else. And the more you know, the more you realize what could happen or what could change or what you think you know you may not know. And I think that you have to run that gamut for yourself with this. And so when I tell you I think you need to be investing in Bitcoin, if you want to th start throwing a little bit of money in there, I'm pretty confident you're okay doing that. But you also need to be walking that walk at the same time to where you understand why you've done what you've done and why you should continue to do it. But what you'll see, even with that three, four-hour understanding of what Bitcoin is and how it works, is it's better money than a dollar. You will, you will not for a second, if you actually understand the most basic fundamentals of how it's hard-capped, how the hard-cap is enforced, how the hard-cap cannot be changed. And if you look at the resiliency and non-brittleness of the currency over the 10-plus years it's been here, if you see how many times it's been attacked, how many times people have said it was going to die, if you go to like the Bitcoin obituaries and start reading them, there's no point at which, you know, after just a, a cursory 
initial understanding that you won't be able to understand why it's better money than a dollar. And people say, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a surveillance coin. So it's every dollar you spend on a credit card or through a bank account or a check. That's not an argument against why it's not a better currency than a dollar. So Bitcoin is a better currency. It's a better money than the dollar. Then it will, over time, with Gresham's Law, push out bad money. And you can ask why gold didn't do it. Well, because they used gold to sell you the dollar. That's what they did. They slowly de decoupled the dollar over time. And because gold has fundamental flaws that the modern dollar solved. Gold was never portable, and it was never able to be broken down into small enough parts inexpensively enough for it to really work, and it always required a third-party intermediary, and the third-party intermediaries were the ones that adopted the dollar, so you did by de facto. In other words, it is almost impossible to buy um, an item on Amazon and have it shipped to you in 48 hours from the other side of the world with gold. And if there's any way you can do it, basically you're using a credit card. So it had a fundamental, like gold is terrible money. It was just the best money we had. And it was money for thousands of years. And the modern age and the desire of the bankers to control you was used to push it out. So that was pushed out by force. But if you give people the option, once they understand, they will gravitate to the better money. And an energy-backed, security-backed, hard-capped, almost infinitely fractionable, lightweight, easy to secure method of payment is better money than a dollar. And it is going to displace the dollar. That doesn't mean the dollar definitely necessarily dies. It may go zombie or Frankenstein, like I said earlier, but it is going to happen. And that means you can't save it. This is where I think we're almost thinking like conservationists here in trying to save the dollar. And what I mean by that is when you look at conservationists, if you look at environmentalists, they always favor the weak. They always favor the dying. It's kind of a mistake. Now, I'm not saying there's not species that are threatened that we shouldn't try to save, but I don't know that it's where the majority of our efforts should go in the world of conservation. Nature does not favor the weak. Nature does not favor the dying. Nature favors the strong, the adaptable, and the non-brittle. Nature, nature favors the adaptive species, not the inadaptive species. And that's why there are millions of species that rose and fell and went extinct. And they weren't all made extinct by a comet nor an asteroid. There's millions of, of species that ran a cycle and went extinct long before humans ever touched the planet, were ever here, were ever even thought of in the dream of God. Because nature favors the strong. Economics favors the strong. The dollar has become a weak currency, backed by a powerful military. That is all the strength that is left in the dollar is the United States' ability to use force around the world in the form of its military. That is really all that's holding it up. It's bad money and it will be pushed out by good. Interest on our debt right now, $402 billion annually and climbing. $402 billion and climbing. Let's say it again. $402 billion a year we have to pay 
for interest on our debt. But do you know what a U.S. bond is paying in interest right now? I, I said zero over six months earlier, and it is. 2.3% over 30 years. A bond right now is 2.3% over 30 years. So, what happens if interest rates went to something like a historical norm of, norm of 4% to 4.5%? It's a trillion dollars. And climbing. And interest on the debt. We, and we have robbed our future. I want you to think about debt this way. This is what the government's done, but it's also what you do when you take on debt. You spent your future earnings before you have them. To have something you want now, you've spent your future earnings. That's what you've done. You've, you've, you've pulled your earnings forward and owe them into the future now. We've done that to a point where with anything approaching a, 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 an interest rate that makes sense, a trillion dollars a year. It wasn't that long ago the United States defense budget was about $700 million a year. Social Security was like $800 million a year. Those numbers are much bigger now, i.e. inflation. But at the same time, we've inflated the currency, we've deflated the interest rate. That's the only way they've been able, this is the other kick-the-can measure they've used. But it can't go on forever. And even if it does, even if you hold interest rates down there, We're at a point now we have a cascading run-up of just the interest service cost. The, the, the shenanigans that have been done to hold it to an astronomical number like $400 billion are insane. And we've reached the limit of that brake pedal. We, 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 we have slowed the vehicle down, but it cannot stop, and it's slowly now accelerating and burning the pads off the brakes. And soon you will hear the sound of metal grinding. And anybody that's a mechanic or at least has ever had brakes go bad, you know what that means. There is a tsunami of shortages and gluts coming over and over and over and over and over again. Like I said, the U.S. economy, the global economy, was like a ship at sea in the middle of the worst storm ever that had the, the, the boards holding it together beginning to creak as the storm was raging to the point of cracking the ship apart, but it seemed like the crew and the captain were at least holding it together. And they decided to start a fire in the hold. That's what shutting down the economy was. Now they put the fire out. It looks like the storm stopped. The ship, with a weakened hull from the inside and the out, is now selling full-on, head-on, head full steam into another storm. Yay! USS forever! That's us. That's our economy. And, and now what we have like are these, think of it like a series of storm lines and squall lines coming in. There's none of this. There's more of this than we need. There's none of that. There's more of it than we need. Plywood's $87,000 a sheet. It's five bucks a sheet. Over and over and over again. And it's only begun. It's only begun. There's an entire massive port shut down in China. I am getting emails every day from a dozen different sources at minimum. Shortage here, shortage here, shortage here in all walks of life. Everybody's worried about food. It's not just food. It's everything. It's companies that do construction that can't get roofing materials. It's companies that make products for pools that can't get plastic bottles to put them in. How basic is that? 
How basic is that? And so while all this shit's going on, you have this supply chain disruption that looks like a roller coaster, you know, that somebody on meth designed. And it's it's like what I said earlier about like businesses would rather have bad knowns than ups and downs that are unknown because that's much harder to plan for. And so you're on this roller coaster designed by a guy with meth, you know, and you know he's like sitting there with his meth teeth looking at you at a screen in the front of your cart. I designed the roller coaster, man. Have fun. And you keep coming around turns and you don't know when you're going to get to a turn where there's no tracks. You, as bad as it is, you add this to this and then there is no fixing it. All the mega trends that I've talked about over the last few years are still in place. The, the massive outflow from the education system. There, there's been more growth. They, they're not even giving you accurate numbers. It used to be Maybe one in 20 people I met, even out of this audience, were homeschoolers. It, it, I, I know that my slice of America is a different slice than most, you know, like the average, thankfully. But it's, it's at least half now. That is a massive increase. And it's only growing. And we have people now asking us, like, how's it working? And you it's fine. Man, I need to do this. Do it. And that's a good thing, but it also doesn't come without consequences. It's one of the, the, the public education system, K through 12. If you look at it like you look at Walmart, if you look at it, even though it's like, you know, this school district, that school district, if you look at it as a single entity, it's the single largest employer in the country. And they have an outflow of customers. They have an outflow of revenue, largest employer in the country while all this is going on. Uh, real estate. You have a massive migration going on right now, and it's not slowing down. And, you know, the cities where people are competing for property because they haven't built any, it makes it look better than it is in those places. The, the outflow is real. People are leaving. It goes right in conjunction with automation, and automation isn't just a robot that does your job. Automation is the thing that gives you the ability to do the job of two people while working from home instead of going to an office. And that feeds back into the automation, which feeds back into the educational problem. And it just keeps going. This is all integrated. It's not going away. And there is one final megatrend. And we've talked about it, but I've never termed it as a megatrend until today. Generalized ignorance and stupidity in society is a megatrend. We are literally in the idiocracy. If, if you think about idiocracy, there's a scene in it. When kind of the, 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 the hero of it of the day, uh, what's his name, Luke Wilson's character, goes to the hospital and he's talking to the lady behind the, the counter. And he's like, you know, my head hurts and I'm not sure where I am. And she's looking at all these pictures and it's almost like a cash register. And instead of you know doing an intake form or something, she finally pushes like a guy holding his head or something. And then like his doctor is like, Yeah, man, uh, your problem is your shit's fucked up. Like, and that's his doctor. Like, that's the society we're living into today. And just because it doesn't look that stupid doesn't mean that's not where we are. Think about the fact that we have doctors denying science today, and the doctors that are not denying science are being censored by 21-year-old technology interns. It's the idiocracy. So on top of all of this, 
We have a general population operating from a point of ignorance and stupidity. And those are different, but I use both words to describe the society that we live in today. Ignorance is what you don't know. Willful ignorance is what you refuse to learn. And stupidity is your inability to learn. And we have all of that shit going on. And so these people will continue to act like what they are, cattle. And since they're put into a field where all they can do is eat and shit, that's what they will do. And they will eat everything until there's nothing left. And what happens when the cattle eat everything and there's nothing left? They either slaughter them or they fall over and die on their own. And we're talking about an economic death here. Not a physical one before anybody thinks I've gone over to the world of Alex Jones. This is the economic death of America. Now, the good news. We're supposed to have economic deaths. Part of why we're in such a miserable position is we have not allowed that to happen for well over a hundred years. We do not live in a capitalist society. We live in a fascist one, but I'll let that go today. We do not live in a capitalist society, though, because losses are not allowed to occur. Capitalism should be a system where the when you risk and you get it right, you reap the rewards. And when you risk and you get it wrong, sorry. And there should be occasional cleansings and rebooting of the system that are completely natural and they would be relatively short cycle. We have taken every single one of them and put a band-aid on a gangrenous wound and kicked the can down the road. And the chickens are coming home to roost. We, like I said, we might have been, honest to God, as insane as it sounds, we might have been able to kick that can down the road for another century. And it can't happen now. You're in a, a decade cycle at maximum, I believe, at this point. And I'm, I'm not 100% because I'm, you know... I actually do feel like I am an expert in this place now. So I'm like at 80% on that decade-long cycle till you have a full burnout of this. And a lot of pain during and through that decade and a lot of pain on the other side of it till it rebuilds into whatever it's going to rebuild into. I'm about 80% on that. And the other 20% isn't necessarily good that I'm wrong could be a lot of other ways there can be pain and misery and gnashing of teeth. And that's all we need to plan for good times and bad. And we need to plan for bad times from the standpoint of these are the most likely ways the bad times will come. And there's this other part of it that could be even worse and we don't even know what it looks like. Because I'm going to tell you something. These people are not stupid. I don't mean the general public. The general public is stupid. The general average person walking on the round, around on the street is an idiot. If you doubt me, go talk to them. Video it when you do, so when you get home and go, they can't be that bad. Watch the video and go, oh my God. But the people that have made these decisions are not that stupid. It wasn't just politicians buying votes to get reelected. The people pulling the levers, the ones you never see, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they knew exactly the trap they were setting, and they knew exactly what the results were going to be when it happened. And we don't know exactly, all the people that tell you they know exactly why they did it, exactly what's coming, they're full of shit. They don't. They're up at the top of that Dunning-Kruger effect. That's where they are. Way up there. They're going to do this. You don't know shit. You don't know a damn thing. 
You haven't analyzed the situation on the ground and said, here's the probabilities of how this plays out, and here's the things you can do about it. You've come to a complete and total determination, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and it stops at H. When someone says that about something this complex, you know you're dealing with someone that has overconfidence. When somebody says, there's no way I'm wrong, you're dealing with somebody that has overconfidence. Especially when they say, there's no way I'm wrong about it working exactly the way that I say it's going to work. You're dealing with a person you should not listen to. Because even if they get it right, they're not going to get it all right. And they're going to get into a point where if it doesn't work exactly the way they think, you're going to get hurt. Like I said, you have to remain adaptable in this. That's why the skill set development is so important. That's why always knowing if I did need to exit this position, whatever it is, holding a piece of property, holding an asset, being engaged in a business, you need an exit strategy for everything. And you need to have walked through it and found all the ways that the exit may be blocked so that you can execute it instantaneously if you really feel it needs to be done. And that's everything, including cryptocurrency. How will I exit this? I don't think you're going to want to, but you still need a way out. When I bought this house, I was like, this is my forever home. I still have an exit plan. I've still made certain decisions and I think certain ways that if I get to a point where I need to sell this place and the people that I'm selling it to don't want anything to do with ponds and permaculture, in a week it can look like a normal backyard again. I'll cry, but I'll do it if I need to leave. Some people don't want what I want. That's important. And anybody that tells you otherwise, don't listen. I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm saying I don't. What I'm saying is that any source that tells you they have all the answers is nonsense. It's nonsense. They either you got two things going on. A person so full of their own bullshit that they believe it, and that's dangerous, or you've got a deceptive effing liar. That's even worse. Because that person will continuously tell you what you want to hear. I guarantee you, most of what you heard from me today, you didn't want to hear. Try to trust the people that tell you what you don't want to hear, especially with enough humility to say, and I could get this wrong. I can, I can have this wrong. I can have any individual part of this wrong. I am telling you the dollar's aft. What that looks like, I don't know. That's where I'll be honest. Is it a Frankenstein dollar? Is it a zombie dollar? It is, the, is it actually the death of the dollar? Does the United States actually go nuts and do the craziest thing of all and make Bitcoin their reserve currency? It would be the best play they could make. I don't think they will, but they could. You know what? Zombie dollar, switching back to gold. Frankenstein dollar, adopting Bitcoin, everything I told you today makes sense. See, that's what I try to do. I try to formulate a plan where the plan as a whole makes sense no matter what happens, good or bad. Anybody that tries to, to solve a complex hunt with a single arrow from the quiver is not to be trusted. And if you're thinking, well, he said all this, and I should also do this, you're probably right. You probably should. Because the skill set development and the business development portions of my plan leave everything open. 
They leave every other option open. Whatever you can think of that you could also do will fit into some portion of that. Well, I should learn about that. That's a skill, skill set development. I should invest in That's probably a business. And that is a complete plan. And that's the best I got. And I wish I, wish I didn't need a plan like this for you. Like I said, my, my quote today was by Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. If there's something you really want to believe, that's what you should question the most. I don't want to believe any of this. I want everything to go back to where it was just really shitty like it was in 2008 when I started. And there was all kinds of things that could happen, bad, but there was also all kinds of things that could happen that would be good. And in one way or another, it looked like we'd be able to plod through this and we would be able to just pick and choose our opportunities along the way. They have train wrecked any semblance that, of, of making sense economically in the world with this choice. To take, I don't care if this disease killed 5% of people that got it, let alone a fraction of a single percent. I don't care if it killed children and, and 25-year-olds and 35-year-olds left and right. Shutting the global economy down was stupid. Unless you knew what you were doing and you wanted the result that we have now. Well, friends and neighbors, I just don't think the people that actually made those decisions are that stupid. I think they knew exactly what they were doing. They're looking out for themselves. So you need to look out for yourself. I hope this helps you today more than it's uh, confused you. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do and you want to help support us when you're buying something online, just go to tspaz.com when you do so. And, you know, I talked about shortages today. My item of the day today is the Barina LED grow lights in six packs. And they come in two foot and four foot lengths. I don't know why, honestly, with all the shortages, But they're on sale. Maybe it's the glut side. Because like I said, everything goes glut and, 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 and shortage. And shortage and glut and back and forth. Look at lumber prices today compared to lumber prices four months ago. But do you, do you think that that doesn't mean we can have lumber prices go jack, jack right back up again? What happens when all of the holdup on construction, right? When all the roofing material comes in? Maybe the reason that the lumber price crashed is a combination of economic factors, but one of them is how many building projects are on hold because they can't get the other things they need to build the thing. You see how that works? Well, maybe the reason that the Barina lights are on sale is they were in really short supply. They sold out. You couldn't get them. And finally, a great big shitload of them came through, and they ended up here in the middle of the summer, and a lot of people use them for starting plants, and usually you do that in the winter. This is what I am, where I'm at with this with things like this. There's a lot of people, especially YouTubers and stuff like that right now in the survival niche. Get everything you can when you can as fast as you can. That's not me. That's not logical. That doesn't make sense. If you really, really need it and you can get it, then you should. But buying things when they're at an all-time high when you don't have to is dumb. That's the, that's the opposite of good financial sense. However, if you're going to be doing something in the future, in the relative short three months, six months, nine months, if you have a plan to do something where grow lights would be something you need, these are great, they're affordable, and they're on sale right now. And they're not going to go bad. You're not going to buy these things, put them in your cabinet, and say, I'm going to work on this project you know, after the summer's over or something like that, and you're going to open them up and they've expired. If you have an item like that and it goes on sale, get it. Get it while you can. And these are on 
a great deal right now on the two and four foot six packs. They are the best lights I have used in, well, ever for the price. I would say they're equivalent to lights that you were paying as much as you pay for six. Five years ago, that's how much you paid for one. Because as the technology got better, the cost was pushed down. But we're in a situation now we're pushing the supply and demand curve the other direction. I would get them while you can if you're planning on using them. And anything you're going to buy online, you can always help us out just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com when you do. So you spend the same money and you help us out and, I mean, why wouldn't you? With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. Song of the day today is by Kid Rock. Man, Kid Rock is one of those guys that, like, I actually stand in awe of his talent. And I would say there's about half of his music I really like and half of his music I have no interest in. Like the rap music and stuff, like, I have just no interest in it. But a guy that can effectively sing, like, classic rock, basically, hard rock, full-on country, and, I mean, a guy that can pretty much do anything. I mean... I stand in awe of that level of talent, even if I don't really like all of it. This song I really dig. This is more of a kind of a bluesy pop song. It's called Only God Knows Why. And it's about a reflection on the price of fame. He actually took some heat for this because he's like, because people are like, well, like you think you're really that important. I think if you listen to this song and you hear him talk about kind of how famous he is, Just because you don't like it doesn't mean he's wrong. And the song really isn't about famous. It's about be, what does fame bring you that's not all what people think it is. And then my favorite line in this song. You get what you put into life. And people get what they deserve. And even when it doesn't seem that way, I think that's often true. I don't think it's always true. I don't think the person that's lived a great life, lived basically a healthy life, and is young and has kids and get a cancer diagnosis, I don't think they got what they deserved. I don't think that's what this song's talking about, though. I think what this song is talking about is a refutation of the attitude of entitlement. So many people think they deserve more, and they do deserve more. But as I've said so often on this show, you deserve what you want. You, you just haven't done the work yet. We're entering a time where I think this is a perfect song for this episode today. Where that's going to come to fruition. So many people have actually gotten so much more from life than they deserve. So many soft, weak people who have not put in any of the work, living relatively comfortable lives and thinking they're suffering. I really feel that sooner or later you have to pay the fiddler if you wanted to dance. And the fiddler is rosining up the bow. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I've been sitting here trying to find myself